Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the Graduate Center and the City College of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, summarizing the news, we're going to lead off with some of the big stories, including, for the first time in a year and a half, we have some really good news concerning the coronavirus. We seem to be turning the corner on the pandemic, and most international agencies have now stated that perhaps a booster shot is not necessary. Perhaps the danger of the Delta variation was exaggerated, but we'll say a few things about that in today's exploration. And also, scientists are acting like detectives, trying to trace back pieces of the genetics of the original virus which set off this world pandemic. And they found something very suspicious. Key footprints that lead us to what really happened in the early days of the virus are missing. And scientists are beginning to realize that maybe, just maybe, these genetic files were deliberately deleted. By whom? And we'll say things about space tourism as well. Richard Branson has made headlines. Yes, a billionaire has funded a rocket mission to the very edge of outer space, about 55 miles above the surface of the Earth. And not too far behind, we find the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, with his Blue Origin rocket. Is it just the battle of billionaires? Is it just to see who has the biggest ego? But what about the long-term implications of this for people's lives, for the economy, for our role in the universe? So we'll say a few things about the future, the future of space tourism. And speaking about outer space, we have to congratulate the Chinese. The Chinese completed yet another step in terms of following the direction set by the West decades ago. The Chinese had built the first module for their space station, and three astronauts entered it just a few days ago. This represents a milestone given the fact that the ISS, the International Space Station, may be deorbited. That's right, this multi-billion dollar apparatus may be deorbited in the coming years because the Russians have indicated that they may pull out of the International Consortium, in which case the Chinese may have the only the only operating space station in outer space. And what does that mean? Also, speaking about space, UFOs are in the news once again. After the United States government published the latest information about UFOs, people are shaking their heads and saying, this is just whetted our appetite. There must be hundreds of other instances and Perhaps videotapes of encounters with UFOs will give us more clues as to where they come from. But already, scientists are poring over these videotapes frame by frame, giving us a wealth of metrics, measurements, on the characteristics of these UFOs that we simply did not have before. And also, I'd like to say a few things about Madame Curie, perhaps the most famous woman scientist of all time, who won two Nobel Prizes. It was a story of triumph, but also a story of tragedy as well. You see, Madame Curie helped to initiate the nuclear age. 
We have the force of gravity that keeps us on the ground. We have the force of electricity and magnetism, which lights up our cities. But we also have the two nuclear forces unleashed by Madame Curie. And sadly, what did she die of? She died of the very technology that she discovered, radiation. In fact, there's a new docudrama on television that you can catch called Radioactive. In fact, it was Madame Curie herself who coined the word radioactivity about the early days, the birth, in fact, the birth pangs of the nuclear era. A story of triumph and a story of tragedy as well. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The big story is, after a month and a half of miserable bad news, setback after setback, horror story concerning the pandemic, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Already people are beginning to take off masks. Schools are opening up again. People are talking about the new normal. And just maybe we may be at the end of having to wear these masks in the first place. You see, the Delta variation was once thought to be more deadlier than we expected. But the early reports have been retracted to a degree. It turns out that this latest variation of the coronavirus, it is in fact more infectious than the earlier alpha version of the virus. However, it is not more lethal. And that's the key fact. So it is more contagious. It is easier to get. And not surprisingly, where is the virus spreading? It's already the number one virus in the United States, taken over all previous versions of the virus, and it's proliferating in the South and the West, precisely in those areas that are least vaccinated. So, a word to the wise. If you're not vaccinated, that could be a death warrant. That could cause tremendous amounts of grief and hardship for you, your health, and your family. So, by all means, get in line get vaccinated. Vaccinations are for free. And of course, there are side effects, but the side effect of getting the virus could be death. And the side effects of the vaccines are minuscule compared to the benefits of what the vaccine can give you. And so just realize that we have now better data, and the data seems to indicate that the Delta variation is not as dangerous as we previously thought and that a booster shot is probably not necessary unless unless there's a new development. And remember, these variations happen all the time. So we have to be constantly on the lookout for a new variation of the coronavirus. But at least temporarily, we can breathe a sigh of relief. Also, space tourism has splashed to the top of the headlines. Richard Branson, part billionaire, part gadfly, part daredevil, risked an awful lot by bankrolling Virgin Galactic and becoming the first billionaire up there at the very edge of space, 55 miles straight up, and it it made history. Now, it turns out that he had to piggyback on an airplane, which took him maybe 10 miles up, and then they turned on the rocket engines, and then he blasted off, and then experienced weightlessness for just a few minutes. And of course, Jeff Bezos of Blue Origins, not too far behind. But you have to wonder, 
Is this just a plaything for billionaires to see who has the biggest ego and the biggest checkbook? Well, yeah, there is some of that. But just realize that some people say we are entering a new era. The first golden age era of space travel was the 60s and early 70s when we went to the moon. But it consumed 5% of the federal budget. That's right, 5% of every dollar you paid in income tax during the Apollo space program went to the Apollo space program. That was unsustainable. There's no way you can sustain a drain of that large on the economy. Not surprisingly, the manned space program collapsed. But now we're entering the second golden era of space exploration for several reasons. First, a new vision is emerging. Not just beat the Russians, but a new vision is to create a multi-planet species, a new vision to create the Earth as a celestial jewel in the heavens, pollution-free, a new a new ethic, a new vision, a new goal is emerging. And who's funding a lot of it? Billionaires. Billionaires mainly using their own funds, not public funds, but using their own funds, are laying the groundwork for the rockets that are going to take us into outer space. And so some people think that transportation in general goes through three phases. In phase one of transportation, like for the railroads and for aviation, it was mainly governments. It was mainly a large industrialists. It was mainly the military that used these uh, airlines and trains to haul large quantities of goods across large distances. That was phase one. Phase two was when it became comfortable enough to support wealthy people. People paid a premium price. Instead of having to go in covered wagons across the West, they can simply pay the price of a ticket, go to sleep, and wind up in places like San Francisco. So in other words, we entered the second era when it became transportation for the rich and privileged. Now, of course, almost anyone can get on an airplane or train or a bus. So mass transportation went into three stages. And some people saying that now we're beginning to enter stage two. That is, the price of a ticket with Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic is about a quarter of a million dollars. If you simply have a quarter of a million dollars lying around, then you too can blast off into space with Richard Branson. To get on the Blue Origin capsule, uh, sponsored by Jeff Bezos, well, there was an auction for $28 million for just one seat on the Blue Origin rocket. And if you want to go into orbit, not just to go up and down, but to actually go around the planet Earth in a multi-orbit journey, then you can pay $55 million to get on Elon Musk capsule. And the Russians are also offering seats on their Soyuz spacecraft as well. And so we're definitely entering the second era where the privileged and the wealthy have access to outer space. But just remember that it's not just all wine and roses. You have to realize that 50 years into the space age, the probability of booster rocket failure is still around 1%. In the past, we've had about 200 space shuttle missions, and guess how many blew up on national television? Two of them. In other words, a 1% failure rate of the booster rockets that would take us into outer space. So just remember... 
Going into outer space is no picnic. But speaking about outer space, the Chinese, the Chinese have set another milestone in their journey to explore outer space. They've now launched the first main module of their space station. Now, the Chinese space station is smaller than the International Space Station, but it was roomy enough to contain three astronauts who went up into outer space and boarded that space station. Now, just remember that the International Space Station, the ISS, will eventually be deorbited and allowed to plunge into the Earth as a piece of space junk, as a flaming meteor from outer space to land in the oceans. Now, why is that? Well, the International Space Station is very expensive, and the Russians have already said that, well, it's reaching the end of its lifetime, so why not let it peacefully die? So, in other words, at some point, the Chinese space station may be the only space station in outer space. Meanwhile, the United States is setting its sight on another space station called the Lunar Gateway. That's right, lunar. The United States is going to go back to the moon, perhaps sending the first woman to land on the surface of the moon. But the short-term goal is to create an orbiting lunar laboratory, smaller than the ISS, which goes around not just the Earth, but goes around the moon, in preparation for a journey to Mars. So you have to realize that space is getting crowded. Prices are dropping. More and more nations are fielding rockets. And as a consequence, some people think that what we really need is a new Outer Space Treaty of 1967. It's going to get crowded up there. And there will be pressure to militarize some of our assets in outer space. And that could be very dangerous. Because it turns out that over 50% of the satellites in orbit are connected to the U.S. economy in some way or another. And if war were to break out, the first casualty of war to be wiped out in the opening minutes of a war would be a war in outer space to blind the enemy so that the enemy cannot communicate with his troops anymore. That would be the first thing that nations will reach for if it goes to war. We need a new outer space treaty of 1967. In fact, 1967 seems like back in the dinosaur age. It was so long ago. But back in 1967, two things were ratified by many nations. One, no nation should put nuclear weapons in outer space. And two, no nation can take possession of a celestial body like the moon. Boy, do they sound outdated. Because today, killer satellite weapons are mainly non-nuclear. You don't want to blow up your own satellites. No, you want to blow up the enemy's satellites by having directed weapons, directed energy weapons, directed kinetic energy weapons, weapons that selectively knock out the enemy's eyes and ears, but not your own. Plus the fact that the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 stated that you cannot claim a celestial body. Boy, is that out of date, because now we have private individuals like Elon Musk with the capability of building a moon rocket. In fact, that's what he's doing. He's building the Starship, which is actually an interplanetary rocket that'll take us to Mars and beyond. 
So Elon Musk has big dreams and he's a private individual. So the Outer Space Treaty of 67 is so out of date and it has to be revised before a conflict erupts in outer space. And speaking about outer space, UFOs and UAPs are in the news. The United States government issued its long-awaited report. Many people were kind of disappointed that it didn't say flatly one way or the other whether we've been visited by extraterrestrials, but it was an admission, an admission by the United States government that whatever's out there, they're not ours. Before, the military could be coy about this, and there was always speculation that there was a new stealth bomber out there being secretly tested by the military. But the military says, nope, it's not ours. And then the question is, where do these things come from anyway? First of all, these things can now be measured frame by frame. We couldn't do that before. By analyzing the metrics from the videotapes, we now know that these objects can travel between Mach 3 and Mach 20. We didn't know that before. 20 times the speed of sound. That's the velocity of hypersonic weapons that are just experimentally being tested now for the first time by the Russians, the Chinese, and the United States. These objects travel at hypersonic velocities, and they've been doing that for decades. So who's been doing it? Second of all, these objects can zigzag. The G-forces created as a consequence are hundreds of times the G-force of gravity. Imagine that your body weighs as much as a Mack truck. Think about it. You'd be crushed to death. You'd be flattened like a pancake if you were subject to these kinds of pressures. And these objects, whatever they are, can go underwater. That's right. They can fly in the air and dive right into the water. In fact, that's led to some speculation that maybe that's where they come from. I mean, after all, these objects have to have a base of operations someplace. They have to land somewhere, refuel, and have maintenance, right? Well, perhaps they don't want to be bothered by pesky humans. So the place to put them is underwater. Who knows? Maybe there's an underwater base for UFOs that we're not even aware of. Something to think about. So just remember, however, that hypersonic drones can also zigzag. After all, that's why they were invented, to evade a Star Wars ballistic missile defense shield by, by zipping back and forth, evading ground radar. But these things can do that and break the sound barrier without creating a sonic boom. We can't do that. And so the question is, where do they come from? given the fact they seem to execute gyrations that are beyond our capability. And again, the military has released these videotapes, giving us a treasure trove of documents that physicists can now analyze frame by frame, and we're astonished at what we see. And just remember, these sightings have been going on for decades. There was one quote from a military man stating that every day, every day, they would chase these objects in the air. One time, they almost collided with one of these things. So what are they? Well, some scientists simply shake their heads and say it must all be fake because the distances between planets are so great that no alien life form can possibly reach us in a reasonable amount of time. Well, yeah. However, that makes a fatal mistake. 
That makes the assumption that these aliens, if there are any, are maybe a hundred years more advanced than us. Then, yeah, sure, it's true. They can't break the light barrier. But, you know, the universe is 13.8 billion years old. Civilizations can rise and fall in a matter of millions of years. And what happens if there's a civilization out there that's hundreds of thousands and millions of years more advanced than us? Think about it for a moment. The universe is so old and so large that there's plenty of time and space for entire advanced civilizations to rise from the ashes and then fall back into the ashes as well. So what are they? I don't know, but I think the military is going to be releasing more and more documents as these things are declassified. So hold on to your hats. Also, there's a new TV series called Radioactive about the triumphs and tragedies of the greatest woman scientist of all time, Madame Curie, winner of not one but two Nobel Prizes in two different fields. Not to mention the fact that her daughter, Irene Joliet Curie, also won the Nobel Prize. And the series, of course, talks about her achievements. That starting with tons and tons of a useless ore called pitchblende, she was able to extract exotic chemicals that literally glowed in the dark, like radium. Glowed in the dark with no power source undiminished day after day. In other words, a new force of nature beyond just gravity, light. The two nuclear forces were born with the work of Madame Curie. However, it's also a tragic tale because what did she die of? She died of the very thing that she helped to unleash upon the world, radioactivity. You see, radium emits alpha particles heavy particles, the nuclei of helium atoms that can rupture the DNA of your cells, shatter them by ionization, creating cancer and creating a host of other diseases. But at the turn of the last century, it was a fad, a tremendous fad that everyone wanted to have their radium potion. It was advertised as the cure for cancer, for God's sake. It was the cure for a flagging sex life. It would give you vim, vitality, and youth. It was considered the elixir of eternal life. Think about that. This is a poison. This is a chemical which will kill you. And it was sold in the mass market. In fact, you can go to any library, look up old magazines from the 1910s and 20s, and there you see it. Advertisements. Advertisements declaring that radium is something from the gods. The sun in a bottle. Radiation that can light up your life and light up your health as well. Boy, were they wrong. We have a whole litany of tragedies that unfolded. One of the greatest tragedies are the radium workers, women that would lick the paintbrushes that they were painting with with their tongue and ingest large quantities of radium as a consequence. Not surprisingly, they came down with cancer and a host of other problems. Their bodily organs began to decay with time. It was a tragedy that unfolded. In fact, what helped to turn the tide was there was a famous playboy who was rich, handsome, very photogenic, a man who was, well, he thought, he thought that he was losing his vim and verve. 
he was losing his youthful vigor. So he would take three bottles of radium potions a day, more than what was recommended, and he would swear by it. He sweared that he got back his strength and vitality until he started to get massive headaches, until basically parts of his body didn't work like they were supposed to. And when he died, people were shocked to find that this handsome guy who was in the fashion magazines all the time, bragging about his latest exploits, was literally falling apart. His jaw, his bones, he was literally disintegrating right before our eyes, a victim of radiation poisoning. But what about Madame Curie herself? Madame Curie during World War I went right to the front lines. She was patriotic. She knew that x-rays, another form of radiation, x-rays could be used to see right into the broken bones of GIs. And that's what she did. She braved all the terrors of the battlefield and took this advanced technology to the sick and the dying. In fact, she got so much radiation from x-rays and so much radiation by having radium all around that many people think that's what killed her. Later, his, her body was interned into the Pantheon, which is perhaps the most sacred building in all of France, and they had to make sure that she would irradiate the Pantheon because her body is still radioactive. And that's a sad testament. You can visit the grave sites of many of the people that died during this period of time, but if you do so, be sure to bring a Geiger counter with you because the half-life of many of these radioactive substances is measured in thousands of years. Not just seconds, but for thousands of years, their body will radiate with the force of radiation and the nucleus of the cell. And then you begin to wonder, where, where was the government protecting the people? Where were the scientists warning us about the dangers of radiation? Why was the American public swept up by this possible cure for cancer, this wonder drug that glowed in the dark, that seemed to be a gift from God, a substance that would cure tuberculosis and diseases and cancer and you name it, somebody claimed that radiation and radium will cure you, only to find out, only to find out years later that it's a poison that radiation is pure entropy, pure disorder, pure chaos. It's like sticking a monkey wrench into a very delicate piece of machinery. It just gums up all the DNA. And what does it create? Genes that will kill you, cancerous genes. And so here we have the irony. The irony is that the nuclear force is in some sense the energy of the universe. It's what makes the sunshine, but it is so powerful that you can get burnt in this image. So be careful the next time someone claims to tell you that they have found the fountain of youth, that they found the magic potion that cures all diseases and restores your youthful vigor, watch out. Just read the stories of those people that thought that radium potions would give them the secret of eternal life, when actually what it gave them was decaying bodies and ultimately death. In other words, the nuclear force was too powerful for early attempts to tame its power.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, and the second part of Exploration, we're going to talk about another person who is pivotal in the history of science, and that is Werner von Braun, the father of the Apollo space program, the father of rocketry, in fact, and yet he had a very controversial background because he was a member of the Nazi party. Well, in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about scientists and their relationship to society. Do we owe something to society, or can we devise weapons of war with impunity? Stay tuned for the second half of exploration. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we talked about the exploration of outer space, but sometimes we forget about the man who actually paved the way for the building of these gigantic rockets that would one day take us to the moon, and that is Werner von Braun. For you baby boomers out there, you practically grew up in the shadow of Werner von Braun. He was the voice of Walt Disney, talking about the exploration of the moon and Mars. But during the war, during the war, he worked for the Nazis. In fact, he was one of the heads of the V2 program that rained death and terror on the city of London. So what was Werner von Braun like? Was he a patriot? Was he a Nazi? Was he some insidious war criminal, or was he a glamorous hero of the space age? With us today is Michael Neufeld of the Smithsonian Museum, talking about the history of one of the most complex and enigmatic figures in the history of rocketry, the man who practically founded rocketry, Werner von Braun. So why rocketry? Rockets were thought to be the stuff of science fiction and toys. Uh, why did he seize on rocketry? You know, it was right in the 1920s that, uh, that, that, that the, the, the space movement took off for the first time and, and reached the general public. It was because of several uh, theoreticians. One of them was Robert Goddard in the United States. Another was Konstantin Tsiolkovsky in Russia. And then in the German-speaking world, Hermann Olbert. And in 1925 or the beginning of 1926, he he already enthused by astronomy uh, got a hold of Obert's uh, rocket treatise, the rocket in interplanetary space. And even though he couldn't understand it because it was all full of mathematical formulae, he was extremely excited about the idea that you could actually travel there. Okay, now very soon he becomes head of the, uh, the uh, rocket program for the government. Exactly how was the transition done? Here we had this young kid getting interested in engineering and rocketry, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden he becomes a pro. What happened? 
Well, it's it's an interesting thing. Of course, it takes a number of years here, about about six or eight years from the time that he discovers Obert. You know, he, he goes to boarding school. He His math grades, which were terrible, become much better because all of a sudden he's motivated in math and science and becomes a kind of kind of, kind of prodigy. Uh, he graduates uh, early in 1930 uh, from high school, goes into uh, engineering school in Berlin, and at the same time, uh, he was a member of the Early Rocket Society in Germany, and they built a rocket center in Berlin. And this so-called Raketenflugplatz, this, this rocket club in Berlin, was beginning to experiment with rockets in, uh, after 1930. And in 1932, the Army, which had already been watching this, got interested again in the rocket as a weapon, the rocket, maybe the liquid fuel rocket that these clubs were developing might actually be useful for a long-range weapon. Now, 1933 is the pivotal year where Hitler takes over, which changed everything. So how did von Braun deal with the Nazi regime? Well, you know, von Braun at first, almost, uh, as he says, uh, paid almost no attention to this. Uh, change of power, except for the fact that his father lost his job, because in fact his father had been the Minister of Agriculture for the for the German Reich in the last two very right-wing cabinets before the Nazis came to power, and was for and was out of a job on the day that Hitler became Chancellor. Uh, so the Nazis came to power, and they were very rapidly destroyed the Weimar democratic system and established a dictatorship. But he wasn't that interested in all that, and in any case. You know, pretty rapidly they began funding the army better and better, so more money came towards him and came towards this little rocket program. At that time, just a couple of people, including himself. Okay, and then what happened in the 30s as more and more money came available, and which led to the development of the V-1 and the V-2 rockets? Well, in in the 1930s, more money was more and more money was given to rearmament, and there were people in the army, uh, notably General Becker, who became the head of the Army Ordnance Department, who was extremely interested in the long-range weapon uh, and uh, and the rocket, uh, the, what we now call ballistic missile, was an exotic long-range possibility, and so he began putting more and more money into rocket development. That led in 1937 to the founding of a new rocket center at Peenemünde on the Baltic Sea, and von Braun, who'd already built up a, a liquid-fuel rocket program, then became the technical director uh, of this, of this uh, rocket research station on the Baltic. And uh, how, how old was he when he assumed the head of this rocket program? Um, he uh, he was 25 years old. He wasn't the head. He was a technical director, mm-hmm. and the head was a military officer always. But he always was the technical head of this rocket development. And he worked for the Army, but the rocket station was actually a collaborative effort between the Air Force and the Army. And he he was the head of the Army side, which went on to develop what was later called the V-2. That was the ballistic missile uh, they called it the A-4. It was the fourth one in their series, which became the weapon deployed at the end of the war. Uh, the V-1 was actually a completely separate weapon that he did not develop. Mm-hmm. That was a cruise missile. It was essentially a small jet airplane, which the Luftwaffe Air Force developed during World War II. Okay. Now the question is, how did he deal with the Nazi regime? Was he aware that slave labor was used to build these gigantic rockets? 
Well, you know, he was, of course, uh, quite uh, quite aware of what was going on. In 1937, they asked him to join the Nazi Party, so he said, well, okay, why not? In, in 1940, the SS came and pressured him to become an officer, and he asked around, and they said, oh, you know, he said, I couldn't really say no, and that was partly because he didn't really have any strong moral principles other than furthering his career and above all going into space is what he really wanted to do and then in 1943 the problem came up how are we going to assemble the v2 uh, and who is going to do it and there was a real manpower shortage because of the eastern front and so the decision was made by others to use concentration camp labor and then the last phase of this and the worst of this is that Un- they went underground in the fall of 1943 because of an air raid on Peenemünde by the Royal Air Force. And that's when the really horrible conditions for concentration camp labor uh, set in. And at that time, when Brown was underground, he saw the concentration camp uh, laborers, he saw the conditions, uh, he was involved in, in decision-making about using concentration camp prisoners, which means that he certainly couldn't say that he bore no responsibility for it. Okay, now he wasn't the only one in that position. That is, top scientists who worked with the Nazi regime, uh, Werner Heisenberg, the man who was in charge of the German atomic bomb program, was in a very similar situation. And so the question is, were these people Nazis at heart? Uh, did they simply join the regime and work the regime because they wanted to further science? Was it uh, careerism? Exactly. Why did they collaborate, in fact, work and head up uh, large parts of the Nazi war machine? Well, in the case of Heisenberg, um, he was never a member of the party. He managed to evade doing that. Uh, You know, he was, I think both of them fundamentally came out of very conservative backgrounds, conservative families that were nationalistic. Therefore, they felt that they were working for Germany and they were working for German interests. Uh, I don't think either Heisenberg or von Braun were fundamentally uh, believers in national socialism in that way. Uh, Von Braun, more than Heisenberg, I think, was taken in by the Nazi regime was a was somewhat enthusiastic for Hitler and by and the conquests and the achievements of the Third Reich as they appeared to be up until they started losing the war. So uh, of the two I would rate von Braun as probably being closer to the Nazi regime than Heisenberg and also bearing much more responsibility because in fact Heisenberg never headed up uh, an A bomb program as such because there never really was an A bomb program. He was just one of the key scientific leaders of a small scientific group. Von Braun was ahead of thousands of people in the middle of the war. He, he took a major personal responsibility. Okay, now let's talk about the engineering feat. Uh, you mentioned Robert Goddard, who built these little putt-putt rockets. Uh, some call them almost like toys, uh, built on liquid-fueled propulsion systems. And Von Braun takes this little uh, Goddard rocket... Uh, only a few feet long, and Bill's uh, Vengeance 2. Uh, Vengeance 2 is the rocket that brought London almost to its knees. So let's talk about the engineering challenges and the successes of Von Braun. Well, of course, the V2 was an enormous engineering achievement, and I must 
uh, say that the the, the long told off told story in the United States that he got his technology from Goddard is simply not true. Uh, he, he didn't. He knew very little about what Goddard was doing, and because Goddard was extremely secretive, and in fact, it essentially was an independent line of development that came from Hermann Oberth and through the German rocket clubs that led to the development of this liquid fuel rocket technology. And uh, the the main challenges were number one, just building a rocket engine much bigger than anything built before. Number two was the supersonic aerodynamics of a projectile that was going to travel at Mach 4 or 5. And finally, the, the hardest problem was the guidance and control, trying to guide this ballistic missile over a range of about 200 miles and hit something. And, and, and you know, as it turned out, one of its main targets was London, and another was Antwerp after Belgium was, uh, was liberated in the fall of 44. Those two cities were you know, essentially shelled by the V2 in the fall of 44 and the first three months of 45. And they did have a local effect of, uh, you know, they were demoralizing in some ways to the local residents. But in terms of effectiveness, I would actually rate them as quite ineffective. Uh, it was much more efficient to use a four-engine bomber to drop plain old gravity bombs than it was to expend the huge resources on the V2 uh, as a way to convey what was actually only a one-ton high-explosive warhead. And some people say that the V-2 rocket was not guided very well. They simply pointed it and hoped and prayed that its guidance system would place its warhead on the streets of London. Well, in fact, the, the, the V-2 had a very sophisticated guidance system for 1944-45. It was an inertial guidance system using uh, gyroscopic controls, uh, using uh, uh, using a, a tilt uh, mechanism where it goes from vertical over to 45 degrees. And some versions had radio control to try to lessen the dispersion from left to right on the trajectory. But the reality was that the technology just wasn't there. So in spite of all that sophistication, uh, the thing could barely hit a huge urban area like London or Antwerp. Okay, now let's talk about 1945 and 46 with the collapse of the Third Reich. What did Werner von Braun do as Russian and American troops began to converge onto Berlin? Um, you know, von Braun wanted to get away, and in particular he wanted to surrender to the U.S. Army. And when he looked at the options of the Allied powers, it was clear that they wanted to get away from Stalin-Soviet Union, and uh, Britain and France did not have the money to fund a big rocket program, and he dreamed still of going into space. Personally, he wanted to travel into space. He wanted to land on the moon, and the United States was his best hope for doing that. So he tried to, to put himself in the path of the U.S. Army. And in fact, uh, he really did, wasn't in his power. It was mostly because of the orders of an SS general who kept moving his group around that he was lucky enough to be in a place that was overrun by the U.S. Army. And indeed, at the beginning of May '45, he surrendered to the U.S. Army. And there's something called Operation Paperclip, in which case uh, Nazi scientists were brought to the United States. So what was the official attitude of the United States toward captured German scientists? 
Well, when when Von Braun surrendered, along with uh, several other key members, including his military commander, General Dornberger, you know, the, the U.S. Army officers and scientists and engineers connected to the U.S. defense uh, became very interested in the possibility of using the German rocketeers in the states, of importing their experience, importing their technology, and it was a it was of course it was not the only group they were interested in. They were interested in all leading scientific and engineering fields that the Nazis had invested in and had some some advantages in, and so that led to a you know a secret program to import German scientists and engineers and technicians into the United States uh, called Project Overcast, which was renamed Project Paperclip in 1946. And Paperclip brought over about a 1,000 engineers, scientists, and technicians, and about one-eighth of those, about 125, were from Brown's group. And also you mentioned in your book the fact that around this time he gets married to a first cousin. Could you elaborate? Right. He was overseas. Uh, it was already overseas in, in the United States since uh, actually September 1945. He was living in uh, Fort Bliss outside of El Paso, Texas, which is where his group was. His 120-some Germans lived for about four years until 1950. And uh, he had had girlfriends before many because he was extremely handsome, uh, extremely charismatic, uh, he had actually tried to marry somebody in Germany in 1943, and that fell through. And 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 towards the end of the war, he became very interested in a very beautiful first cousin, uh, Maria von Christorp, uh, and uh, who was a member of a family he was very close to. Uh, and in 1940, late 46, he wrote to her. And then now that she was 18 and asked her to marry him, and they and she felt the same way, and so they agreed to engagement by mail. And he came over in March 47, guarded by U.S. Army MPs the entire time, because uh, they were afraid of a Soviet kidnap attempt, and he was still somewhat, you know, watched by us. Who was he? Was he loyal? Was he useful? You know... So he actually was brought over to Germany and married her in uh, a ceremony in Landshut, Bavaria, in March 1947. Okay, now let's talk about 47 to 57. Uh, what was happening then? Some people think that America was sleeping while the Russians were soaring ahead with this rockets program. But what was von Braun doing between 47 and 57? Um, well, from, you know, up until 1950, he was uh, heading this small rocket group for the U.S. Army in El Paso, and they launched, they helped to launch the V-2s in White Sands, New Mexico, nearby, um, and uh, they were developing a, a, a cruise missile, actually, which, but they had very little money, because, in fact, we weren't very interested in, in the arms race with the Soviet Union until after the Korean War started. And uh, and we did not invest in ballistic missile technology very heavily until 1954, and that was the year the Eisenhower administration sort of launched a crash program to build an ICBM because of the Soviet rocket developments were getting worrisome. They were getting ahead in rocket development. Now, 
we never quite caught up that advantage that they had built up early on after World War II, because in 1957 we were caught by surprise to some extent by the first ICBM that the Soviets launched, immediately followed by Sputnik when they launched the first satellite in October 57. Okay, now let's talk about that historic launching of Sputnik. What was the reaction of the Eisenhower administration? What was the reaction of the public when the Russians beat the pants off the United States? Um, the, you know, the Eisenhower administration was, was rather calm about the whole thing, which just tended to infuriate many people in the United States even more. Because we had advance warning that they would have a rocket and satellite capability, and the Eisenhower administration actually did not mind that they, some in ways, that they set the precedent that you could overfly other countries. Because ultimately, Eisenhower is most interested in Florida reconnaissance satellites being able to take pictures of the Soviet Union. But but the public was increasingly fear infuriated, especially after Sputnik 2 with the dog only one month after Sputnik 1 demonstrated that they had this big rocket, this big launch capability. And so over the fall of 57, the fuel over the Soviets beating us got, got heavier and heavier. And uh, that brought the Eisenhower administration under pressure, ultimately accepting that von Braun would be allowed to launch a satellite in addition to our official satellite program, Vanguard. Okay, and let's talk about Vanguard. I mean, here we have the Russians launching Sputnik 1, Sputnik 2, a dog in outer space. Uh, people are hysterical. They're saying that perhaps uh, hydrogen bombs will be raining from outer space. And, and the Vanguard rocket was a dud. I explain the impact of what happens when America's great hope turns out to be a dud. Well, you know, the Vanguard program ultimately succeeded in launching satellites, so in 58 and 59, but of course it was an enormous embarrassment on December 6, 1957, when after two Soviet successes, the first Vanguard launch failed miserably on national television, went up four inches, cut off, fell back, and blew up. And so this was essentially the third in a series of humiliations. Uh, and uh, although they then launched a satellite in March 57, in the meantime, von Brown and the Army got their chance, and they launched the first U.S. satellite on January 31st, 1958, Explorer. And tell us a bit about that, because the public impact was absolutely staggering. Here was a German come to America to launch America's Hope, as the press said. You know, by the time that von Braun was uh, uh, famous for launching Explorer, he was already famous for doing other things, notably for writing articles about space travel in Collier's Magazine in the early 50s and for appearing on Disney TV shows in 1955. So he had already made himself into a famous man and had become a U.S. citizen in 1955. So he had an image with the public that many had already accepted that he was probably our leading rocket engineer, leading American rocket engineer. Uh, so, you know, people accepted this pretty well. I mean, obviously there were always people who had questions about his Nazi past, but the Army and, and his own accounts of his past uh, sort of swept the problems under the rug and, only, and, and tried to make him look as good as possible. Okay, so what happens after 57? NASA gets formed, a huge amounts of money is available. What happens after 57? Right. 
Hey, you know, of course, 57 uh, and the Sputnik launches us into a space race, launches us into a race with the Soviet Union over space, which is continually fueled by, of course, one Soviet first after another. You know, they, 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 the first satellite, the first dog in space, and then later on, the first, the first thing to, uh, go into escape velocity into orbit around the sun, the first thing to hit the moon and so on, and eventually in 1961 the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin. So all of these Russian firsts only fueled this this expansion of American space development. And Finn Brown ends up playing, of course, a very important role in that. His rocket group for the Army is transferred to NASA in 1959-60 and becomes Marshall Space Flight Center. And in the meantime, while this is happening, uh, the, the Saturn program begins. Its first version of the Saturn, later called Saturn 1, is designed to be a heavy lift vehicle for putting things in orbit. And, of course, uh, ultimately after Yuri Gagarin, Kennedy decides to go to the moon, and Saturn becomes the basis ultimately for the development of the moon rocket, Saturn 5. Okay, now 1961, the Russians put the first man in orbit around the Earth. America once again has another nervous breakdown, and there's enormous pressure, as you mentioned, on Kennedy to stake out the next goal. What was the reaction of the engineers? Did they think that uh, Kennedy was unrealistic by saying that by the end of the decade we will put men on the moon, or did they think that it was going to be easy? Well, certainly no one thought it was going to be easy to put humans on the moon by the end of the 1960s. I mean, everyone saw that it was an enormous challenge. The reaction varied, actually, depending on who who you were talking to. And I know that many of the people involved with the early Mercury program, they were just hadn't even gotten a human up yet. Alan Shepard was launched about three weeks after Yuri Gagarin for a little 15-minute hop. And then three weeks later, Kennedy announced going to the moon, and they said, my, this is really hard. Uh, Von Braun, on the other hand, having spent his lifetime promoting the idea of space travel and actually having been part of the behind-the-scenes discussions about how to respond uh, with the, you know, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, uh, basically was the one who told Johnson, we can build a rocket to land on the moon probably about as fast as they can. We have a very good chance of beating them to a landing on the moon. Well, that concludes our interview with Michael Neufeld of the Smithsonian Museum, who's written one of the definitive biographies of one of the giants of rocketry, and that is Werner von Braun. But as he intimates, his legacy is still debated even today by historians of science. On one hand, we have some people who think that, well, he was a Nazi. He took part in the creation of the Third Reich. In fact, he extended the power of the Third Reich by introducing the V-2 bomber, the terror weapon that destroyed part of London. It was too late to turn the tide of the war, but it certainly instilled fear in the minds of the Allies. That's one part of his personality. But the other part of the personality is the side that really wanted to explore outer space. The childlike quality that, when he was a child, made him design rockets and read science fiction and dream of one day perhaps even going to the moon. So, which is it? Well, some historians say that he was a mixture of both, but basically he was a single-minded scientist who was devoted to science so much 
that he didn't really care who we worked for. If working for the Nazis meant that he would have access to funds, unlimited funds, he would have access to the finest mines of the German Empire. If, the, if that was the price to pay for heading up the rocket program, then, well, so be it. He was willing to pay the price. In other words, as the song says, he cares only when the rockets go up. He doesn't really care where the rockets come down because he was so single-minded that on one hand, he could work for Adolf Hitler, and then on the other hand, he could work for Eisenhower and for Kennedy because he was devoted to science. And so that raises the next question. Can some people be so narrow-minded and wedded to science that they even sacrifice their souls as a consequence? They become war criminals. They become instruments of mass terror, inflicting pain and suffering. Because after all, who built the V-2 rocket? The V-2 rocket was built on the backs of slaves, slaves who died in the process of conducting these dangerous experiments with explosives on an experimental weapon of war. And so, yes, some people paid the price. Some people paid the price of science gone berserk. That is, science lacking its moral compass, so that some people would work on these things, even if it meant killing others by the thousands. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was Michael Neufeld of the Smithsonian Museum, and the book was titled Von Braun, Dreamer of Space, Engineer of War. And if you want to find out more about exploration, go to my website. My website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. We have about four and a half million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. So go to my website, mkaku.org, and find out what science is all about. Good day.